This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce the Historian's Podcast. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of the Historian's in just a few seconds. The Historian's Podcast depends on your donations to continue. You may donate online at GoFundMe.com slash The Historian's or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historian's is also heard on Rise, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled. Google WMHT.org and on SoundCloud search Eastline Studio. And now, on with the show. Sheila Myers joins us on the Historian's Podcast. How you doing, Sheila? Good. Well, thank you. Sheila Myers is a professor at Cayuga County Community College. She's author of a previous novel, and she has a new novel coming out called Imaginary Brightness, a Durant family saga. Who are these uh, Durants that you're talking about? Yes, so the Durant family is uh, very well known, especially in the Adirondack region, but also the patriarch, Dr. Thomas Durant, is well known for his endeavors to build the transcontinental line across the United States. And there's actually currently a TV series on AMC right now called Hell on Wheels about that. Uh, he's one of the star characters in it, and it's about the building of the transcontinental line. Well, as he well should be a star character. I mean, that was a really big deal. Yes, yes. And then his family, while he was building the transcontinental line, was um, during the Civil War his wife took their two children to England, where she was from originally, and they lived there for almost uh, 15 years or so. Uh, the uh, son, William, was, um, when they arrived back in the United States in 1873, was well, well known for his architectural style in the, United, uh, in the Adirondacks, where he built a rustic style of architecture. Mm-hmm. And his daughter, Ella, was famous herself for her literature. She wrote articles, books, novels, and uh, she started the Dante Society of Hmm. the United States. Well, uh, talking about uh, their lives uh, for a moment more, I mean, uh, Dr. Durand, or Thomas uh, Durand, he builds this railroad. He's one of the big people involved in the Transcontinental Railroad. But I I gathered from the information you, you have that he... Uh, got into financial difficulties, and the reason the son, William, came back, uh, I mean, he was pretty much ordered back, wasn't he? His father said, look, you got to come back and help me out here. Yes. Well, they were having a really good time in England, William and Ella, (laughs) (laughs) spending all of their father's money. William traveled around the world. He had just gotten back from an expedition in Egypt with some buddies where he was big game hunting and traveling around, and I found in some of the documentation his um, of his letters at the Library of Congress, he had um, hosted this large, what they called feats or festival at uh, a, tem- a temple, Temple Karnak. And you should have seen the list of food and, you know, vic- uh, libations um, that he ordered for this feast for the British consulate. He did. He was very good at spending money. Uh, he stayed at the top-notch hotels in Cairo, and he, he actually saved the bills from a lot of this. I found it in the Library of Congress in his uh, in his letters and correspondence. Hmm. And he he and Ella both had friends that were in the aristocracy, and they spent a lot of time uh, at the Isle of Wight, which was a very popular vacation spot for 
people of the time because Queen Victoria had a summer home there. Yeah. Well, even the Beatles referenced the Isle of Wight. Yes, in the song um, when, when I'm, I'm 64. 64 right? Yeah, I know. It's great. <laughs> no, so but... I found all of this out when I looked through his letters at the Library of Congress. I mean, there was biographies that mention it, but I really got a good chance to see addresses and places where he had visited. Mm-hmm. Now, um, maybe I'm a little confused. Uh, William and Ella, they're brother and sister, right? Yes. Okay. Now, I've heard, I'd heard more of William because of what he did uh, up in the uh, Adirondacks. Yes. And, and the reason the, the family focus turned to the Adirondacks is even though the, the father, Dr. Thomas, is in financial straits, he, when he had money, bought a lot of land up there, right? Yes. So while he was building the transcontinental line, he actually was also setting his sights for the future. And he would send his lawyers to tax sales. New York State had these tax sales where they would be unloading Adirondack properties because lumber interests and mining interests would go in and strip the land of whatever resource they were after and then abandon the land and not pay any taxes on it. So during the 1960s and well into um, probably the beginning of the 70s, these tax sales would happen, and um, Dr. Durant, being the entrepreneur that he was, sent his lawyers, and they buy land for up you know five cents an acre mm-hmm. and you so said he, uh, you said 1960s you must mean 1860 right. thank you yes and he uh had accumulated about a half a million acres by 1873 then the panic hit the 1873 panic which actually was a depression mm-hmm. uh and there was over speculation in railroads and dr durant had been one of the people that over speculated in railroads he was also Although he wasn't complete, you know, legally implicated, everyone knew that he was behind a big scandal called the Credit Mobilier scandal, where he had set up a front company to um, charge the government, the U.S. government, for construction costs for the transcontinental, and he overcharged for, you know, most of it. So he he was in a bit of a financial bind when he did call William and his family back to the United States. Now, somehow, I don't know exactly how it developed, but uh, I've heard of William West Durant because, I mean, his big claim to fame, as I, as I understand it, is he uh, came up with the idea of marketing the Adirondacks to rich people. I mean, rich people yes. like his father or his family, yes. these big uh, tycoons of the 1800s, and uh, and market uh, them or market the Adirondacks as a vacation haven with these big uh, homes, which they called camps. Right. And I think what made him more of a maverick or a bit of a revolutionary of his time was you know, he and his father, his father belonged to the New York City Yacht Club and the Metropolitan Club and all the private clubs in New York City and hobnobbed with, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Morgans and the Astors and that, that crowd of, you know, <laughs> robber barons, tycoons, industrialists. What they were doing, most of them, is building these huge mansions at Newport, which is really the place where everybody went. Uh, and William, you know, they had this land in the Adirondacks. His father was actually big into marketing it and already working on that when William came to the United States and got there. And they, William saw the, um, and I think this is what makes him unique, is he saw the uniqueness of the area and built to conform to the environment. So he he used native materials. He uh, incorporated this Swiss chalet style, which was 
unique for the time, but it wasn't very unique in, in Europe. It was actually kind of a craze for second home building. Uh, and he he used local labor. He didn't import as much as others. And he didn't build huge mansions. He built more secular type of architecture where you'd have, you know, a building here and then a walkway in another building. Mm-hmm. Now, I've read various accounts of why this might have been, um, but it for the region, it's perfect because it, you know, um, helps prevent if there's a fire, you know, your whole house doesn't go up. Mm-hmm. But it also forced people to get out into nature. So you might have had your sleeping quarter, you have your sleeping quarters one place, but then in order to use, you know, the dining facilities, you get out of your sleeping quarters and walk to the dining facility. So you're more interacting with nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the time, yes, he was a bit of a revolutionary and he was also a perfectionist. So his camps were beautiful and had, you know, very um, well-made materials and he used local craftsmen Mm -hmm. to do his work. So... He, he was uh, famous for that. Now, have you been to the, you live uh, uh, in the area of uh, Cayuga Community College, I, I would presume. Yes, in the Finger Lakes region. Yeah. But you uh, you have a connection to one of those camps, do you not, from your college, the college yes, you well, attended? SUNY State University of New York at Cortland owns one of the first great camps he built. It's um, It was called Pine Knot. It is now called Camp Huntington. It's actually named after another railroad tycoon. Hollis P. Huntington, who was um, really Dr. Durant's nemesis in the building of the Transcontinental Line, he bought the um, pine knot from William, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was like 1895. And the when he died in 1900, it, it, sta- it was abandoned basically by the family. And two professors from SUNY Cortland were canoeing along Racket Lake and noticed it. They were looking for a site for educational outdoor education facility. So they found out from the locals who owned it. And there was a transfer, I think, of like it cost a dollar or something for the state to take it over. Mm-hmm. And many of the buildings are still there that were originally built by William. So it's a very unique area, very unique um, place. And there's a cabin that alumni can rent. And that's what kind of got me hooked on the, the, the story it's about a mile off-site, and you can only get there by walking or by boat. And it's supposedly, the, the folklore goes, uh, that it's where he kept his mistress. <laughs> William see. kept his mistress. Okay. <laughs> I thought, oh, what a great story when I stayed there. And I thought, I'm going to start looking into this and writing about this guy and his family. So. Well, thank you for your patience, because uh, I mentioned that you're writing a novel, uh, or it's out uh, by now, uh, and that is Imaginary Brightness, a Durant Family Saga. Tell us a, a bit about this uh, book. Well, what's the title referred to? Yes, the book is actually coming out May 31st. It'll be available on Amazon. And I got the title from, I was reading, one of William's uh, favorite books was The Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. And he actually named some of the buildings in his camps after characters or places in the story. So, for example, his second camp that he built up in the Adirondacks called Camp Uncas, which is actually for sale right now, believe it or not, hmm. um, that Uncas was a character in the book. Um, Sagamore, another, which is now an institute and a place where people can go and stay, and that's another, I think it's a, I believe it's a place in the book. So I was reading the book last summer because I, I thought, oh, let me read this book, and it's actually very hard to read. Hmm. But I found a passage in there, and the passage said that, History 
like love, is so apt to surround its heroes in an atmosphere of imaginary brightness. Hmm. And I thought it was very, um, it was just a very good description, I think, of the Durant, William Durant's life. I think to some degree because he grew up with so much money and able to, he was able to do so many things without thinking about the cost. Mm-hmm. His life, he, he saw life that way. You know, he his formative years were spent that way. And is sort of this idea that, you know, I don't want to say delusional quite, but, you know, nothing can go wrong. And even in his old age, I found letters, I found a letter he wrote when he was probably in his 80s, um, 1932, he sent a letter to Pulteney Bigelow, who was a famous journalist, and I found it in the letters at the New York Public Library. And he said to Pulteney, at this point, he's completely broke, bankrupt, he's married and a second wife, and he says, I'm, I'm poor, but I am not unhappy. And everything I read about him and his biographies was that he was a very charming man, and even though he was destitute towards the end of his life, he remained very positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one reason for this, that mm-hmm. using that quote. And the other is that I think William has sort of, he's been elevated to this hero status in the Adirondacks, and I don't mean to tear him down at all. Uh, but, you know, there are, every human being has a weakness and weaknesses, and he has them. Mm. And I think we have a tendency to look at people and, and just the positives and not realize that there's, Negative. you know, to some degree, yeah. some, you know, he's a bit of a Shakespeare tragedy, and, and to some degree he went bankrupt. He um, lost money on every place he built that, mm-hmm. up there in the Adirondacks when he went to sell it. Uh, he was um, an artist at so, in, the, you know, in his soul. Mm. We're talking with uh, Sheila Myers. Uh, she's author of Imaginary Brightness, a Durant family saga, and a uh, historical uh, novel. Uh, oddly, uh, some of the things I've, you said you didn't want to tear down uh, William Durant. I, I've heard, though, that he was kind of regarded as sort of a, I don't know, a scallywag, or, you know, you off, you know, he, that he kind of sort of sold people like the Vander, uh, well, the, Maybe they worked out with the Vanderbilts, but some of these rich people saw him as someone who was trying to take advantage of them. Oh, interesting. Now, I haven't gotten that perspective in my um, research, but uh, it's interesting you say that because I was looking through um, Harold Hochschild um, in the 1920s and 30s, did a lot of research in the Adirondacks and has a, num- a couple of volumes. There's, you know, he's dead now, but there was some volumes um, – and it, of course, it's not going to hit me what the name of his mm-hmm. work is, um, but I'll, I'll look it up here real quick. But he he had in he spent he put um, a, a lot of emphasis on William and his influence. And in one of his volumes, I found in the appendices a letter, some correspondence between J.P. Morgan, the financier, and William, and there was some negotiations going on between them for land sale and mortgages, and I'm sure it's very complicated, and there was just a couple letters, so I couldn't really get into the history of it, but William was being raked over the coals by mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan. It was very obvious in these letters, and he was, to some degree, not, I don't want to say begging, but he was, you know, requesting very heartily, um, please, you know, don't do this to me. Um, you know, we, we had an agreement, you know, follow through with it. This is going to leave me without much money. I'm trying to take care of my mother. So, you know, I think what was happening towards the, um, you know, early 1900s when he was being sued by his sister and he was going through a divorce and, you know, this was late 1890s, early 1900s, he was 
getting a little desperate, and people were taking advantage of that situation. Mm-hmm. So he did sell Uncas at a loss, I know that, mm-hmm. and Sagamore as well. Now, uh, it, uh, Durant building these great camps for wealthy people, um, this kind of leads us into the, you know, it sounds like an, not a, an interesting field, but it really is. It leads us into land use. I mean, it, uh, the idea that there was private property in the Adirondacks was even something that was sort of foreign to the people who were there when uh, people like uh, Durant uh, come in and they start parceling out uh, the land. Yeah, so what was interesting about the time period now, in my book is I'm, I'm assuming I'm going to be going into a series here because this first book covers the time period 1873 to 1883, and this is just a snippet of his life. So this book um, is kind of an interesting time period because when land speculators like the Durants owned all of this property <clears throat> and then were trying to entice people from New York City and the other cities, you know, this was the height of the Industrial Revolution and people are looking for ways to <clears throat> get away from the city. And so they were, you know, promoting this, this idea of, you know, come to our hotels or come to these camps and or maybe buy your own little piece of paradise. And so that was the first and the beginning of this, this tourist craze. And actually some point to a publication from 1869 that was written by um, W.H. W. Murray, and he wrote The Adventures in the Wilderness. Um, William Murray, and it was all about the Adirondacks and camp life in the Adirondacks, and people read it and just thought, oh, what a great place. Let's go and escape, and we can hunt as many deer as we want and catch as many fish as we want. And the people that were up there, um, there weren't very many people settled in the area, but who the people that were there were mostly guides Mm -hmm. or lumbermen, and they would take these people out for a fee and take them to spots where they could go hunting or, you know, fishing. Mm-hmm. And they'd stay in ca- rustic cabins and that sort of thing. So the Durants sort of changed that um, culture a little bit because they started coming in. And one of the Durant cousins, Frederick, built this huge hotel called Prospect Point on um, Blue Mountain Lake. And others started building hotels, and they would attract a lot of tourists and people to come. Uh, the guides, you know, they were still busy, kept busy, but they, a lot of them had to start working for the hotels instead of for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then... Really, towards um, the um, 1880s, what was happening is you got people like the Vanderbilts. Um, the um, actually some wealthy businessmen would, you know, gather together in New York City, and they purchased thousands of acres of land for their own private preserves. Mm. Um, so it was the beginning of this new uh, kind of uh, land use, and it wasn't speculation. Instead, it was, you know, let's let's set up these private preserves up there because. If we don't, the land's just going to go to pots. The New York State isn't taking very good care of it, and we want to protect some land so that we can continue to hunt and fish and do what we want. Um, And that changed, you know, a lot of things in terms of culture because then the guides were kept out, you know, not allowed. You're not allowed on this property. It's now private. Um, You know, before that, people were just moving into the area and just, you know, with squatters' rights. People would just set up a cap a cabin and I'm living here now mm-hmm. <laughs> you know right, right. <laughs> the state didn't pay much attention um, and that just started to shift by the 1880s mm-hmm. and more protection from the government for the for the land but there's yeah. all, always this um, 
what should I say, clash of cultures. I mean, when um, you know the people that you were that were living there, you described you know the lumberjacks and the and the guides, um, the folks, if you will, uh, and then these wealthy people come in with their own servants, let's say, and maybe even European servants. And it's right. it's just quite a quite a mixture. It, you can see where there'd be uh, you know controversies or points of tension here. Yes, and a lot of the tension was this, um, a change of lifestyle for the guides that had free roam. You know, there was very little enforcement of game uh, law. Um, the wardens were sparse. And then suddenly when these preserves came up, these people that owned the land wanted to protect the uh, wildlife that, you know, they wanted to hunt and started asking the state to do more enforcement. And then in 1884, the state, um, through a lot of pressure from various interests, including some from the Erie Canal, um, you know, businessmen that were um, interested in preserving the Erie Canal, wanting to make sure that there was not uh, more destruction and damage to the forest and, uh, in turn, some of the destruction of the forest was causing some water quality damage along the Hudson which fed the Erie Canal. And so they started turning to state and lobbying for the state to have more protections um, against lumber interests and against overuse of the land. And in 1884, there was a law passed. Uh, it didn't have much teeth, uh, but there was a law passed to um, protect the Adirondack Forest. And that was the beginning of further legislation that came along. Some came along a little later in 1892. And the state started then also buying up land. So what we see now is the Adirondack um, Preserve really got its start in the late 1880s. And when that happened, the guides, a lot of them started going out of business because they really had free range, as I said, and were able to, you know, take these wealthy clients to wherever they wanted, and now suddenly there's private property, no trespassing signs up. Um, They weren't able to just set up a cabin wherever they wanted and squat on land. So things started changing, and there was a lot of tension. Mm. We're talking with Sheila Myers about her novel, Imaginary Brightness, a Durant family saga. It involves uh, William Durant, his father Thomas Durant, uh, William's sister Ella. Uh, I mean, there's an ongoing dispute between Ella and uh, her her brother and other uh, developments in the Adirondacks, and you just indicated to us this could be is. Uh, the start of a of a series of novels. Uh, we're getting si- kind of close to the end of the program. I'd just like to find out some more about about you. Um, I've mentioned that you're a professor at Cayuga uh, Community College uh, out in Auburn, I believe it is. And yeah. um, is this your field? Are you in the field of history? No, actually, I'm in the field of ecology. Um, I'm a scientist by training, and though so, this has been interesting for me in terms of learning methods for research and history, <laughs> going to these old archives and collections and, you know, learning how not to use little sticky notes for, <laughs> I was at the Library of Congress and I, I, I put little sticky notes on places that I wanted to make, you know, digitized copies of things. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. When I pull out <laughs> really? That is yeah, a- and it's interesting to see the security levels of security at different places I go to. So Library of Congress 
you're practically frisked before you walk in. Really? Because I've yeah, I went yeah. there once just as a tourist, you know, with the the family, yeah. and it's it's so yeah. beautiful. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah. You can't use sticky notes, Sarah. No. Well, I was in the archive division, the manuscripts, and they make you put all your stuff in a locker. And you can't have a bag with you. You can have a laptop, um, but they check it. You know, they just don't want people putting a piece of paper in between their laptop and shutting it and taking off. You know, you only use pencils and their paper, that sort of thing. And then I've been in other places where they're very, you know, there's somebody standing there right over you anyways, and they're not too worried about you using your own paper or notebook. But uh, I've been, it's just been very, very interesting, this whole journey of learning how to do this kind Mm -hmm. of research. And because of my scientific training i'm just uh curious you know, i'm just always curious anyways mm-hmm. and always looking for new clues so this has been a fun research journey i would say out of the family there's a lot written about william but ella considering the fact that she was a writer there's not i haven't been able to find a lot out about her mm-hmm. um, be, i've just been reading her her material her book of poetry a couple of her short novels to f- learn more about her the only letters that I could find that in existence about her are at Syracuse University, mm. and there's um, a collection, but it's mostly after the trial that she sued William for her share of the inheritance. And eventually and he had to settle with her, didn't he? Or? He did, and at that point he was broke, so she yeah. didn't get any money anyway. No, it didn't matter anyway. It didn't matter, yeah. no. But yeah. they were close at one time, because I could tell from reading his correspondence at the Library of Congress that she was mentioned in a lot of the letters from their friends in England, um, and his those letters go back into the 1860s, and you know they spent a lot of time together as a family, her, Ella, and his mother, so they were close at one time. Mm. And... She lived until the 30s, and he lived even long. It's not like he lived a very long life, William. Yeah, he died in 1834. He was in his 80s by then. So he. No, I'm sorry. She, actually, she died. Uh, I'm sorry. She, she died, died in sorry. 1934. Died. And she died, I think, soon after in 18. Well, she, she died in 1943. So they both lived a pretty long lives, yes. Oh. Let me ask you about your previous novel, because this is number two. Uh, right. For you, this, this has to do more with the ecology, the environment. Yeah, so really, my foray into writing was, you know, I I sat down and and wrote a a book called Ephemeral Summer, and it was all about, I really wanted to just write something about the ecology of the Finger Lakes region, and I I wrote a a book with some um, development, you know, there's a conflict about development, it's set in Canandaigua Lake, Uh, I use, you know, actual stories and, and conflicts that are happening currently around that region. And then I have some characters in there. There's a love story, and, and you know, a, 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 it's really almost a, it's a coming-of-age story because there's a young scientist in there. Mm-hmm. So after writing, I got the bug. I thought, okay, and I did that really just to just to do it. You know, I've always wanted to write. And then again, as I told you, I, I got hooked on this story when I was staying at the cabin of William's mistress, supposed mistress, and that got me going on this research journey. And as I started to write this book, I realized, I've got so much material to work with. I'm going to have to do this in a couple of different, you know, a couple books. It's not going to just be in one book. So this one's coming out at the end of May, and then I'm hoping to get writing now that I, I have summers off. Um, so I'll start writing again, you know, when the semester's over at mid-May. And, and I'm pretty um, prolific in my writing. <laughs> I just sit down, and it, I can't. I, three hours go by, and all of a sudden I look up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've written 3,000 words. So 
I'm hoping to have a draft, you know, ready by the end of the summer for this second book because I've got so much material and outline for the book already. And then, of course, the proofreading and the, the editing and all of that other stuff takes months, months mm-hmm. of time. So, well, it's uh, and also you're doing this on your own, correct? I mean, this is going to be yes, a I'm, self-published. I'm self-publishing. Uh, I, you know, with this book, I thought, okay, I, I did outreach to a few agents and started getting rejections, and I know. That's pretty common and typical, and I thought, okay, do I spend my time doing this, looking for an agent, or do I spend my time doing the research? I mean, really, I had to make a choice. Unfortunately, I've been spending most of my own money, or all my own money, on this research, and it's, it right. was costly. I mean, I even went to England with um, to pursue some information. So I just recently wrote a few grants to a couple um, local, you know, New York Foundation of the Arts mm-hmm. and another organization to see if I can try to drum up some funding for the research because I am discovering new things about his biography that others did not know and I feel you know that this is important it's a good important piece of our history um, his you know his places in the Adirondacks are sure. national heritage sites Sheila Myers is author of imaginary brightness a Durant family saga it is available on Amazon you've been listening to the historians this is Bob Cudmore